You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. Hi, I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Good morning, everyone. It is Friday, August 6th. Welcome to the Beltway Briefing. We've got Mark Alderman, Towner French, and Patrick Martin from our DC team. You've got Caitlin Martin on the mic this morning. Howard is out this week, so I will be filling his very big shoes. It's been a really busy week in Washington. It's it's finally really infrastructure week in the Senate. The House just left for August recess last Friday, and the Senate's been busy plugging away on the $1 trillion Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. We finally saw text last Sunday evening. We got a CBO score yesterday, uh, which you know rang in at a hefty $656 billion added to the deficit over the next 10 years. Um, and the Senate's considered 22 amendments to the bill. So it's it's been a busy week up there on, on Capitol Hill. Not a usual uh, first start to August. Towner, or Professor French, as uh, Howard has started calling you, tell us a little bit about it. What What's what's in the bill? What's out? What are some of these amendments? And, and, and what, what does the process Absolutely. look like? Are we going to see resolution this weekend? I think we're going to see resolution this weekend. We almost saw resolution last night, uh, but the Senate uh, stayed in until midnight and uh, Senator Bill Haggerty from Tennessee, Republican from Tennessee, uh, decided uh, the Senate shall not uh, move forward with uh, unanimous consent. Uh, Of course, uh, they were trying to speed up the clock yesterday, uh, trying to get senators uh, out of town for uh, Senator Enzi's funeral in Wyoming today. About 25 senators have traveled to Wyoming this morning. So the Senate's not going to be voting on anything. They're not really in session uh, today besides a pro forma session. But they will be coming back tomorrow uh, because they were unable to reach that unanimous consent agreement uh, to move forward to final passage on an expedited basis. As a result, if they if Haggerty, Senator Haggerty continues to object, uh, we could run out this clock and have a final vote probably on Monday-ish, maybe Tuesday morning, but probably Monday afternoon. Um, but the underlying issue here is not necessarily this bill, even though Senator Haggerty, Haggerty brought up the fact that the bill doesn't save as much as as it should. And Senators Portman and Cinema uh, proceeded to put out a statement that said, hey, look, uh, we just think the CBO's got it wrong. This bill is fully offset still. Nothing to see here, folks. Um, either way, it's not going to affect probably the ultimate votes on, on the underlying bill. Uh, but Senator Haggerty does not want the Senate to move on to the budget resolution, which would, was set up that $3.5 trillion uh, budget reconciliation process. Uh, so now we're in to the extent uh, that Republican senators can. Continuing the infrastructure debate in a bipartisan manner means slowing down the budget resolution on the partisan side of the coin. Uh, Patrick, did I get all that? You got it. Leave it leave it to a freshman senator to care about a CBO score. I mean, as we all know, like when culture's invoked, it, it we this is like the Democrats are like, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way, but we're gonna get a final vote. Um, but you're right. I mean, he's one of the few kind of dragging his feet, and last night was really the kind of the main one. But I I, I just think it is fascinating as just pure political analysis. I mean, I remember when the original CBO score for the ACA came out. I'm trying to remember what it was, 800 something. But I mean, these things used to be absolutely critical. And 
frankly, what we saw is this thing just has enough support and enough legs that it really didn't matter what that CBO score said at all. Uh, it's going to get done and it's going to get passed on a bipartisan basis. So I just found that to be very interesting, but this is always the towners you referenced. They're trying to drag their feet. So they don't move out of the budget resolution. All this is doing is slowing down summer vacation uh, for a bunch of members who would like to get home as soon as possible. So where does it leave the budget resolution, Patrick? Where are we with the linkage that Schumer insisted on that Pelosi has insisted on. What yeah. does that look like? Yeah, it's really Speaker Pelosi. The ball is sort of in, in her court um, for how they're going to do the timing. And she has been, you know, pretty forthright that she wants these things to be done in tandem. There was some speculation that she would maybe walk that back and they would try and just clear the decks and get get the bipartisan infrastructure framework uh pass through Congress, you know, on its own, but she's as good a vote counter as anyone. And I think you're going to continue to see these things have to have to happen very closely together. Um, so I think what you're looking at is a situation where, uh, you know, Biff will get done in the Senate and then these guys will all come back and we'll sort of see this move in tandem in the house. Um, you know, I'm sure there's, a whole bunch of senators who would love the House to just come back and pass it, but I, I'm I'm not sure that's going to happen. Tanner, what do you think? Well, I mean, this gets this gets to the question of how soon can you put together a three and a half trillion dollar budget reconciliation bill, and how quickly can you move that? Uh, obviously, there's there's some intervening issues here. Uh, first of all, uh, they have to deal with debt ceiling uh, in the middle of this. And and one of the key questions that I think nobody's uh, really talking about too much outside of Washington D.C. right now is there is an expedited procedure in a budget resolution uh, to be able to lift the debt ceiling. But it's not in the manner that's preferred by the Democrats, generally speaking. And that is you can lift the debt ceiling by a dollar amount but not to a date specific. Right. And the the reason uh, Democrats tend to like date specific because they always try to push it out beyond the next election date, first of all. And second of all, it means you can spend whatever you want to in between that intervening, inter intervening time period between then and the date that you select. Republicans like to select a dollar amount specific to raise the debt ceiling. And the reason is that you can push for offsets of that specific dollar amount uh, in the negotiation uh, of lifting the debt ceiling. And so Democrats have to decide whether they want to use this budget resolution, which has an expedited tool for lifting the debt ceiling um, that's going to be coming up uh, here over the course of the weekend. But they have to introduce the budget with that language in it. And I, I think I don't Senator think they're going to do it. Well, yeah, I don't, I gonna, I don't I think they're going to do it. Leader McConnell wants the Democrats to own this, to own the raising of the debt ceiling, he said, and, and it might set us up to a situation where we're facing, um, you know, a, a potential, hopefully not government shutdown situation. But Republicans are saying, no, you want to pass a three trillion dollar reconciliation bill own, own own raising the debt ceiling and include that. Otherwise, we're not here for it. So what happens then? Democrat and Democrats are saying we have to do this. And we that what they don't what the leadership knows is that they don't want to increase the they have in order to get all of this to happen at the same time, in order to get Biff done, in order to get the budget resolution done, they need this package to be as robust as possible to keep the progressives on board. If they add the debt ceiling increase to uh, the budget resolution, that is going to increase the price tag. It's going to get the moderates and the caucus skittish. And frankly, as just a pure political how the Democrats feel about this point, they feel like they got rolled in 2011 
when when we had a similar type of stare down, President Obama was entering a difficult reelection cycle and they feel like they caved and gave in too much. They I think that Democrats are perfectly happy to enter a stare down situation with McConnell over raising the debt ceiling. And I think the Democrats will win. I think the Republicans will blink or enough of them will blink that they'll get over a 60 vote threshold to get, you know, whatever needs to be passed, passed, because I don't think McConnell or the Republican leadership are going to allow us to default. Well, I think it's a good bet for the Democrats. I really do. I just don't I don't know what I mean, Connor, Caitlin, you tell me if you disagree, but I I don't know. I think I think it's a good bet that they'll get it done because they have to. I wouldn't bank on it, Patrick. we've, We've been here before. The last time we went down this game of chicken, the credit rating of the United States of America was downgraded for the first and only time in 2011. And we are we are quickly moving down that path again uh, to when uh, we see at the end of September, not only uh, would uh, the government shut down, meaning the, the annual government funding wouldn't be continued, but also the debt ceiling would be breached, meaning the full faith and credit of the United States government uh, is in trouble. And so we are we are still six weeks plus out, seven weeks out. Uh, but we're certainly uh, loading onto that track and uh, and moving towards an inevitable uh, cliff at the end of September here on both of those fronts. Sorry, Mark, I cut you off. No, no, I was just going to observe two things about uh, all of this. One is I, I just think that this conversation, while very intelligent as any conversation Professor French leads uh, is is certain to be, This is such ultra inside Beltway baseball stuff. And I think the American people have just had it up to here with everything going on in Washington right now, especially in the context we sadly um, face of a COVID resurgence. The idea that there's going to be all this brinksmanship and gamesmanship I I think there is no happy ending for either party in playing this game. And I'm all for one or the other just getting it done and moving on to to what matters. The other thing I was going to observe that that I think it's it's inside baseball uh, also, but it's interesting, at least to me. All of this is happening in the Senate. If you actually read the Constitution, it says that the House is supposed to initiate spending and and budget and debt ceiling and the rest. And it's just damn interesting that the House is gone and not even scheduled to come back till September 20 something, I think. And you've got all of this drama on on the wrong side of the hill, according to Article One. Towner, you have a house staff PTSD here. Just just <laughs> all the actions on the other side. I'll tell you what, in my 15 years, uh, it was usually the House that stayed behind and did all the budget work and the appropriations work. You know, we let the Senate, right. you know, sort of go off and, and do whatever they wanted to do. I take mean, their, I wish I were morning naps. Yeah, yeah, give me the six-week recess. I never had that when I was a House staffer. What the heck? That's I really think we'll, let, we'll let the 100 adults on Capitol Hill negotiate this uh, package and just send it to the House, have them pass it as is. I would add, too, just, just to, uh, one point on what Mark said, the brinksmanship, the politiz- uh, you know, politicizing of everything, 
you know, it would be really easy for people to be cynical about what's going on in Washington. At the same time, if they're able to get this bipartisan infrastructure framework passed, along with, uh, you know, the big China piece of legislation earlier, there is some bipartisan legislating happening in Congress, a heck of a lot more than uh, I remember from my time there. And so that there is this weird contrast. There's things that are getting done and that feel normal, a normal amendments process, you know, a vote that's going to pass with upwards of 70 U.S. senators. That seemed inconceivable uh, just a little while ago. So that contrast I find to be very interesting. McConnell and Schumer are getting along right now at this very moment. Dogs are laying with cats. Uh, The world is turned on its axis. a, A friend of mine who is actually Towner, a professor of constitutional law and spent years and years in the uh, Senatist Ted Kennedy's council. He said to me the other night, McConnell is for this. What more do you need to know to know that it's a bad idea? Okay, there's a school of thought that says we're not quite sure how, but we're being outplayed. And if McConnell is for it, we got to take a step back and say, where is this going? And why (laughs) are are we we doing doing this? That's that's Caitlin, you're you're the uh, you're the advocate of this being a BFD. Last week's theme was Caitlin's bipartisan infrastructure package. BIP BFD. It is it still a BFD this week? Uh, what what does it yeah. mean when it is the bipartisan part of a partisan four trillion dollar package? Well, I am a little skeptical on and, and sort of pushback there. I know there are several Repub- very conservative senators that are concerned about this very issue. The fact that. You know, this is a half of a, of a larger whole. Um, I'm a little more skeptical than some on our team that this reconciliation bill is actually going to get done and tied up and be as big as everyone thinks it is by the end of this year. Um, I think, you know, we got to we, we can't the Republican Party cannot be the party of no. They cannot be the party of obstructionism. We've needed this for a long time. As I talked about last week, a lot of what's in this deal is something that the Trump administration have been advocating for and Republicans you know, with the Republican-led House and Senate had been trying to get done. Um, some, you know, we got the offsets and the pay-fors in a somewhat, you know, good place for most of the moderates in the Republican Party. There are, of course, you know, the Senator Rick Scott, Senator Mike Lee, Senator Josh Hawley, um, Senator Bill Haggerty that are going to have their concerns about such a large CBO score, and I understand that. But, you know, we, we, we need to get this done. We saw 22 amendments that are this week more than, you know, many of the more recent bills in the Senate. We're back to a, a process of more regular order. Both Schumer and McConnell seem to think that everyone had their say in this in this package and it's time to wrap it up and get it passed. And I think that the House is going to be in a, in a challenging position if they think they can open up and renegotiate some of this. And I think that it's, it's going to be good for the American people and, a, and a, hopefully a, a good win for everyone. Since January of this year, our government is led by four institutionalists. This is a win for Washington experience and decades of knowing and learning how to govern. Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Mitch McConnell, 
This is the way they want Washington to work. This is, this is a culmination of all of these years of learning how the legislative process works, of building coalitions, of building these relationships. And, you know, the American people love to hate on Washington. And you see people get primary who have been there a long time and newcomers coming in and the House flipping every two years. But like, this is why you want people there who know what the heck they're doing and build up some experience and some knowledge. And I think, you know, listen, does Mitch McConnell want to be in the majority? And does he would he prefer a Republican president over a Democratic president? No question about it. But is Mitch McConnell probably a little calmer at the end of the day? Uh, you'd have to ask Secretary Secretary Cho that. But, you know, is he a little does he come home and he's a little more relaxed uh, because Washington is working in the way that he thinks it should? I, I think he probably is. And that doesn't mean that the partisanship stops. But the normalcy that has returned, I ju I, you just can't overstate it. And I think yeah. I think it's a testament to these guys and, and their experience. Well said, Patrick. You know, Mark, it's it's going to be tough, though. Uh, Mitch McConnell has played this masterfully. Uh, he's gotten on board. He's gotten Republican credit for a for a hard infrastructure package. Uh, and so all of his folks who are up for reelection, there's not many because most of them are retiring, uh, are able to at least say they voted for something uh, and they got that hard infrastructure package through. Now he gets to sit back, say, I'm withholding all 50 of our votes without a problem from the reconciliation package and watch the progressives and moderates in the Democratic Party eat themselves alive trying to get this this reconciliation bill uh, through over the next few months. And we're already seeing that. I was on a call with a client um, with a moderate Democratic member whose name I will not mention, whose staff are kind of pushed back when I was urging for something to be included into a larger reconciliation package and said, you know, we don't, that, that's not really our strategy. We think this is a good concept we need to build bipartisan support for. And, and we're not, there was some hesitancy there. And I, I'm thinking that this one moderate Democratic member might be a hard get on a $3 trillion reconciliation bill. And as a reminder, they only have a three-seat majority in the House. Although you may get a few problem solver type. I don't think Fitzpatrick votes for a three trillion dollar reconciliation bill. I would be disappointed in him if he did. We we know <laughs> you would be, Caitlin, and I'm sure he is wrestling with that very concern at, at yeah. this moment. But but this whole conversation, of course, is what uh, my friend, the professor, was was saying, which is that if you roll the tape ahead and you get to the end of 2021 and you have all of the good stuff that Patrick articulated with which I certainly concur. We this is who Joe Biden is. We all know I'm a, a fan. And he told everybody this is what he was going to do. So nobody can be surprised that this is his approach. And this is a victory for his program. The challenge is that the party, the Democratic Party on, on the Hill and elsewhere, it isn't exactly on that page. And if you get to the end of the year and you have the success of the bipartisan infrastructure package, and somehow or another, the debt ceiling gets lifted without too much brain damage. And that's it. And the reconciliation dream died. Boy, that there is going to be a, a lot of 
second guessing in the Democratic Party as you head into the primary season. So I think I think McConnell, it's not so much that he has outplayed Schumer because they can each only play the hand they have. But but I think he has a much better hand to play than than people thought when Georgia sent two Democrats to the Senate. Absolutely. And you look at I mean, this is the thing about legislation. Uh, it, it Let's assume the Democrats can get the reconciliation bill passed for a moment. You're entering next year and it's a politically challenging situation. The country is not going to feel like we're completely out of the pandemic yet. Uh, the map, I think, is favorable in a lot of ways for Republicans. It's a midterm of a Democratic president. I mean, legislation doesn't cure all ills, right? And it, it takes a while for the American people typically to even understand the. is an infrastructure bill. These things are going to take years to build. This could take years for the money to get doled out. And so will they realize the political benefit of Washington working the way it's supposed to? It's, it's an open question, and, and they might not. But Mark, I think the other thing I was thinking of, in addition to Washington working the way it should, you know, a bipartisan group of senators today are going to get on a plane and go to Wyoming for Senator Enzi's funeral. One of my absolute favorite Republican senators from from my time on the Hill. And it, no one's tweeting about rhinos and whatever the heck else. You know, it it just this sense of decorum that has returned. Um, and I credit all the leaders for helping foster that. I also credit President Biden. something he's doing. So it's not just all a criticism about uh, President Trump. People have heard me say this, something similar on the podcast. One of the things during the Obama years that I've come to really in retrospect sort of appreciate everything with President Obama had to be about him all the time. And it was exhausting for for Republicans, for a lot of people. Is this your birthday tribute? <laughs> yeah, this is my the greatest uh, exactly. president of you, the 20th you saw, century. He had to be at the center of everything uh, politically in Washington in a different way than President Trump. President Biden is just governing with class. He is not. He knows that he he is gonna. This is gonna be an accomplishment for him and his team. But he is able to just take a step back and kind of let this process work and he's not out on television every day talking about it. And I think that is a throwback too to a different time where leaders governed in a just sort of responsible way. And I, I, I just think that's another thing that, that uh, president Biden deserves a lot of credit for too. Well, Mark, you, you brought up a great point earlier about some of the frustration and we saw some of this spill out this week between the progressive wing of the party with really drawing their fire on the White House towards the end of last week with the expiration of the eviction moratorium. And um, we saw, you know, progressive squad star Congresswoman Cori Bush camped out outside of the Capitol all weekend to try to draw attention to this. And she had a good break with the weather. That she it's did. All about she did. The it was weather. Great weather week in Washington. Ultimately, in the summer, wherever you are, it's all about the weather. And she had a, a a good weekend to camp out on the steps there. But but yes, she she forced the president's hand. She forced the president not only to reconsider, but to do something that he had. Admitting is unconstitutional. He wasn't allowed to do, right, (laughs) right. Mark, have you ever seen anything like that? That was was kind of bizarre, wasn't it? It was very bizarre. I I don't think that was on his prepared remarks from his staff, but yeah. We'll see. We'll see what the Supreme Court does. I mean, 
But it, the other thing is it took it took some councils in Speaker Pelosi's office to go over to the White House, who has numerous councils everywhere you go. There's a council and to tell them, hey, what if you looked at it in a different way and maybe we could do it this way? And so right. then all of a sudden the White House goes, aha. But it took a couple enterprising councils in Speaker Pelosi's office yeah. to get the White House to reconsider. And, that, and also, uh, several days of not so positive headlines for the White House. Yes, it, it, I think it, it's still playing out is is what it is. It's got to get fixed somehow. Yeah. I think the House coming back to deal with BIP is going to be an opportunity to take up the eviction. But Mark, uh, they didn't think that Democrats had the votes. There are a lot of no one yeah. wants to see people get you know ripped from their homes, of course. But there are a lot of there's a lot of thought that we've provided enhanced unemployment benefits and folks are making more than they were before. How, why aren't they using some of that to pay their bills? There's landlords. We have clients in this situation that have, they've got loans to pay the banks. And, and we passed a lot of support in the in the American rescue plan and money has been slow to flow to some of these folks, but why do we need to continue extending this when it's, when we're moving in a new direction? Well, that's the other side of the story, and that's a very valid uh, point of view. It's probably the point of view, frankly, that the White House had in addition to the legal cover of we're not allowed to do it, because it, 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 it isn't it's a little bit more Biden-esque than than it is not to actually not do something you're not allowed to do. That didn't slow down either of the last two administrations. So I think the legal cover was exactly that. I think the White House more or less agreed as a policy matter, Caitlin, with what you're saying. And they they got leveraged by the progressives and, and had to blink. And that is the backstory that we keep coming back to again and again and again. We just had that conversation about bipartisanship where the progressives in the Democratic Party are not are not especially interested. That is not what they came to Washington to do. You have it playing out in the eviction moratorium, which is just a specific case study on the Hill of how the Democrats are divided. And just to turn before we run out of time to something I know uh, you as our host intended to raise, it's actually the backstory of the whole drama in Albany with, with Governor Cuomo as well. Obviously, he, well, I say obvious, I'm with the president. Uh, he should resign. If he doesn't resign, he is going to get impeached. But he is going to get impeached both because of his conduct, obviously, and, and, and he should be, but also because the progressives have taken control of the Democratic Party in New York, have taken control of the Democratic uh, Party in Albany. And they're going to throw him out, both because of his conduct, which is more than, than enough to 
impeach him, but also because they don't like him. And they, they hate him. Yeah, that's, them. And that's they the want him part. gone. And that is another progressive, moderate tension. The only support for Andrew Cuomo in the Democratic Party that is left, and, and it isn't enough to save him, and it shouldn't be, but the counter argument isn't isn't anything to do with the content of his conduct, which is deplorable. The counter argument is we can't let these lunatics run the asylum here. And at least he was in the middle of the road in addition to being the dreadful human being that he turns out to be. So everywhere you look, the, the politics of this party are, are fractured. Well, I completely agree, Mark. I have uh, no no rebuttal to that. I think we we saw a little bit of that as uh, the leaked remarks of DCCC Chair Sean Patrick Maloney at a at a lunch last week, warning some of his vulnerable incumbents that that recent DCCC polling shows that if an election were held today, the Democrats would not keep the majority in the House, and they've got a real a real messaging problem. Whether it's you know defund the police or um, socialism for everyone, but we can't end it on that note. Um. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just concerned that Mark sees New York as a moderate state that may go progressive at this point if Cuomo gets thrown out. Like, where's, what's, the, where do we recenter on moderate? That's well, a good question, right. in both parties, the the center has moved dramatically and to the extreme. And yeah, it, we're getting a moderate mayor in New York City, Towner. So that that's encouraging. Who will be hosting at our office next week. Excellent. That's the point to leave it on, Caitlin. I think there you go. Eric Adams is coming to the new New York office of Cozen O'Connor this this coming week. And we are proud to have the incoming moderate mayor of New York uh, as our guest, although there is still the technicality of an election in November, I think. Yeah. But but that's looking pretty good for for Adams. And and to be continued, all of this uh, is is going to be playing out. In August, which it isn't usually, but as we began by saying, this is not your typical August recess because there's no recess yet in August and into the fall. But thank thank you for your excellent job hosting here. I'm going to make a a motion as soon as we have a quorum that you take the microphone over. I think Howard should be worried. This is why you can't you can't have you know, Patrick, they, you know what they say, if if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Towner. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Mark. We'll probably recess for a couple of weeks and come back with a bipartisan infrastructure bill all tied up and moving on to the fall. So we appreciate everyone listening today and have a great August. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.